Good morning. Uh, it's good to gather with you guys today, even, uh, even if it's virtual. Um, I know it's, it's not the same, and we miss you guys, but, uh, but it's also a, a blessing, I know, to, to have the technology to, to be able to do something like this. Um, and I know I'm uh, especially grateful uh, having, you know, my mom gets to, to see me preach for the first time, which is pretty cool. So, uh, so in that sense, pretty exciting. Um, but although we, we do hope that we get to, to see and gather with you guys again soon. Uh, we're going to be going through uh, or continuing our study in the book of Mark, uh, looking at Mark 6, 14 to 29. Uh, so in this story, it's a, it's a pretty wild story. Uh, so really in the end, this is the, the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. So we get to see the, the dysfunctional family of Herod and Herodias, uh, and all the dysfunction there, and then leading to the, the death of John the Baptist, um, which also on that note, when I first looked at this, I thought I was preaching on, on Mother's Day, and I was trying to figure out how on earth do I preach the beheading of John the Baptist on Mother's Day. Uh, but anyway, we would have made it work, but this, this is good too. Uh, a couple of things I'm going to highlight as we go through. Really, the two, two main points is looking at the, the brokenness that we see in sin and the brokenness of, of Herod and Herodias. Uh, and then the second highlight, looking at godly courage, which we see in John the Baptist uh, as he faithfully preached the word of God uh, and the courage he showed there knowing what could come. Uh, and it's a courage really that, that can only come through Christ. So to begin with, I'm going to read just the, the first part of it, and then we'll break that down a little bit uh, and then read the, the second half of the passage. So starting with Mark 6, 14 through 20. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So in this narrative, uh, it begins with Herod's hearing of Jesus, presumably his miracles, uh, and believing that it is John the Baptist who is now coming back to life. Uh, and this was actually a, a semi-common belief at the time, uh, but could only be believed by someone who, who truly didn't know much about Jesus, such as that Jesus and John the Baptist had been alive at the same time, so he couldn't be John the Baptist coming back to life. But at this time, Jesus had been gaining a lot of notoriety uh, with, his, with his miracles, with uh, his, his speech, his teachings. Uh, and John the Baptist had been known for that before as well. So Herod just kind of loosely links the two together. Uh, but I think even more so, uh, without even thinking through what he's saying, uh, my, my feeling is that Herod probably was freaked out uh, and, and his thought driven more by, by fear and superstition uh, because there's a, a slavery of fear that goes along with sin. When you wrong somebody and then try to, to hide it, uh, or you know you were wrong and, and don't repent of it, there's this fear of, of being exposed. And I think a lot of that is what's driving Herod here. He thinks John the Baptist has come back for revenge. 
It's at this point that Mark takes us back to recount the detail of John the Baptist's death. To understand what exactly is going on, though, it will be good to have some context into Herod's family situation, which gives insight into John's circumstance. So there's four different Herods in the New Testament. Uh, The one in this account is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, his father, was the one in the Christmas story that was trying to kill the newborn Jesus. And like his father, Antipas is also pretty malicious in character, which we know not only from the story here, but we also know as Jesus refers to him as a fox in Luke 13, 32, when Jesus was told that Herod wanted to kill him. This is also the same Herod, which Pilate sends Jesus to before the crucifixion. So it gives you a little bit of idea of who this Herod is, Herod Antipas. The other key player in the story is Herodias. So the wife of Antipas. Not only is she his wife, but she was also his sister-in-law, as this said. Herodias had married Antipas's half-brother before leaving him to marry the recently divorced Antipas. So it's an adulterous marriage of Herodias and Herod, and is setting the scene for the death of John the Baptist. Now, the marrying of a living brother's wife was prohibited by the Mosaic law. And this is exactly what happened with Herod and Herodias. So they're breaking the law, which is what John kept saying. So John the Baptist would not let it go without notice. So the text implies that John warned them multiple times, which was fueling the rage of Herodias. And she, as we see, was ruthless. Her response to John calling them out is that she wanted to kill him. She wanted to kill him for speaking what was actually true. You talk about pride and self-deception. I imagine given her position and power that she probably didn't get called out very often. And the longer one goes with getting puffed up and only hearing what they want to hear, the more difficult it's going to become to hear the hard truth. So pride has a way of hardening our hearts and also deafening our ears. Instead of admitting admitting her wrong or repenting, she wanted to silence him and punish him by death. The only reason she wasn't able to was because Herod was superstitious and feared what bad things would happen to him if he put a holy man to death. When the text says that Herod then uh, also heard John gladly, it doesn't mean that he's soaking in God's word, but it's really speaking more to the superstitions that Herod had. Uh, and very likely that he's trying to look out for himself and earn the favor of God and a God that he doesn't even truly believe in. It's like he's trying to play his, his cards right, in a sense. Uh, and I, I'd known a person who, who had spoke like that before, uh, where they talked about attending church uh, and said they didn't really believe everything that was being taught. They didn't really believe uh, in the work of Jesus. They wanted to go to church every Sunday in case they were wrong and that he was real. And that way they had played their cards right and then could get to heaven. But friends, that's not how, that's not how God operates. He's not looking for us to play the cards right. He's not looking for any way for us to, to earn our way to him. What we know through scripture is that it's through the grace of God alone and the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are saved. Not anything we do or earn, not playing our cards right. But to partially appease his wife and to keep John's convicting words mostly silenced, Herod had John imprisoned. This way, people weren't being told of Herod's adultery, and John was kept safe from Herodias. So in Herod's mind, he's kind of doing the only thing he can or the perfect situation for him. But as the text tells us, Herodias did not let go of her grudge. She continued to carry her resentment, 
looking for an opportunity to strike. And that is what we see play out in the second paragraph of today's text. So let's read that together. Mark 6, 21 to 29. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herodias finally found the perfect opportunity to trap her own husband into carrying out her vindictive agenda, which she does even at the expense of her own daughter's dignity. Herod held a banquet with his nobles and military commanders. So it's some of the most prominent and influential people in his political circle. Herodias' daughter enters the scene in a way that seems premeditated and danced in the way, as the text says, pleased the men. Based on the language, we can infer that it's not just any dance, but something that's more of a, a sensual or provocative type of dance. And it was so, so much that, uh, that Herod makes the offer to give her anything she wishes for, up to half his kingdom. So now we have a daughter with any wish at her fingertips, and she runs back to her mom for advice. What should I do? What should I ask for? Now, finally, with the chance to carry out her bitter desires, she, Herodias, advises her daughter without hesitation to ask for the head of John the Baptist. So her daughter runs back to Herod with excessive urgency in haste, and not only asks her mother's wishes, but asks for his head on a platter. So a sick twist on the already sickening circumstance, as if this is some kind of joke. And to top it off, although Herod didn't even want to do it, it says, he did it anyway, because his important guests had heard his oath, and he wanted to keep his reputation intact. Herod's pride and image were more important to him than the life of another man, an innocent man at that. You talk about dysfunction. Dysfunction and brokenness seem to be ruling the day. And this is an extreme example, but one of depravity and brokenness of the human race apart from God. The amount of self-centeredness and pride in Herod are immeasurable. We see him imprisoning an innocent man to protect his image and keep his wife at bay. See him lusting after a girl to the point of being delusional and offering her anything that she wants. And we see the murdering of an innocent man for fear of what his, parent, his, his peers would think if he had broke his crazy promise. And Herodias was just as wicked as she showed vicious anger when rightly called out in her adultery, manipulation in using her daughter as a means to get her own way, and not only using her, but doing so in an explicit and shameful way. And we also see her brokenness and carrying bitter resentment against John the Baptist as she seeks to make him pay for speaking out against her. 
Overall, we see ignorance, self-preservation, self-rule, pride, lust, anger, manipulation, shame, and resentment all on display in this tragic passage. But before we jump to conclusions and start casting our stones on this family, because it looks bad, let's look to the word of God to shed a little more light on this for us. So the apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This definitely sounds like the Herod family that we just discussed, but the scripture doesn't say this is just about them. It's everyone. None is righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. That includes us. The apostle Paul is clear in that text that we have no shot left to ourselves. He says that like Herod's family, we are unrighteous and rebellious. So let's evaluate ourselves in general and compare to Herod and Herodias. Have you ever ignored biblical wisdom, doing something that you may have been advised wasn't wise, but you wanted to do it anyway? Have you ever overlooked the needs of others or the lives of others? Have you ever become consumed with the lusts or been consumed with the comforts of this world and detracted yourself from the word of God and what really matters? Have you cowered in the face of conflict? Have you become angry when disagreed with? Have you ever manipulated the situation or person to meet your own desire? Have you ever harbored bitterness and resentment, thereby blocking your ability to forgive? Have you been enslaved to fears of this world or fears of man and let it dictate your actions instead of a fear of God? If we're honest, we're a lot more like Herod and Herodias than we realize or want to be. On our own, we are as hopeless and deceived as them. And that's bad news for us. We don't want to be Herod or Herodias in this story. We don't want to be a part of that family. But scripture is clear that that's the family our flesh is born into. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Because although we are cursed by our sin, God has made a way. We cannot do it ourselves. So our gracious and loving father in heaven took care of it for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then another way in Ephesians 1, 5, in love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is the good news of the gospel. We do not have the ability to save ourselves. We do not understand. And in that sense are no better off than Herod and Herodias, but God has made a way through faith in Jesus Christ. We are redeemed and adopted into his family. We are taken out of Herod's family and are able to step out of the cycles of lies and deception. We're not stuck there. We're not stuck in that dysfunctional, spiritually broken family that our flesh is born into. God plucked us out of our brokenness and adopted us into the most loving, gracious family imaginable. We are chosen and we are loved unconditionally in Christ. 
This should fill us Christians with unbound joy and gratitude. By Jesus paying our sin debt on the cross, he purchased our adoption into God's family and freed us from the chains of sin, and we are loved eternally. The gospel of Jesus Christ is empowering and gives us the courage to be bold like John the Baptist in this story. That's how he is able to stand up in the face of death and repeatedly call out the sin of Herod and Herodias. He knew the history of Herod's family, and he knew very well the danger he was putting himself in. But he chose to do so anyway because he had tasted and seen how good God is. He knew the possible cost of speaking the truth against them. But his trust, faith, and hope in Jesus empowered him to die to himself to count everything in this world as loss in order to be faithful to the word of God. And we should note also that this narrative is sandwiched between the sending of the 12 disciples that we, we heard last week and then their return in Mark 6:30. right after this. I can assure you this is no coincidence. John's persecution and suffering is a foreshadow. Being sent out as disciples of Christ, which we are called to do into this broken world, you should expect suffering and persecution will happen before you return home. Despite being faithful to God in his ministries, John was still subjected to suffering and lost his head just because of the truth he shared. It is an astonishing consequence for sharing the word of God, but persecution and trials of of various degrees are the cost of discipleship. Whether it's as extreme as John the Baptist, yes, it is in some places in this world, Ours might not be that extreme, but we will experience trials of various degrees. It reminds me of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, where he says, grace is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. John's courage and steadfastness through the trials is to be an example for us to follow. Even if it was going to cost him his earthly freedom and life, he was still willing to preach God's truth because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. We also must stand up for the name of God and for what he says is right and true. By tolerating or remaining silent about sin, we are thereby condoning it. We must live and speak in a way that shows the value of the gospel. It is more valuable than our own comfort, our image and ourselves. We must be willing to speak the truth of Jesus at all times and at all costs, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is always worth more than everything else we have. Proclaim the truth, even when it hurts. And I know when we share the truth of the gospel, We are allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to hurtful words, uncomfortable situations, and even attacks of different kinds. And in this passage, Mark is saying that that is our reality and we need to be prepared and not shrink back. Although honestly, I'll admit many times, I do want to shrink back. I want to shy away as it would be easier to to just avoid the conflict and not say the hard things, protecting myself from hurt, protecting myself from any possible pain. I know I've let opportunities to share the gospel pass by and make excuses for doing so. I'll make excuses like the the conversation just didn't present the opportunity. 
uh, or I'm building a relationship first. But then even when I build the relationship, I still don't. And I find another excuse. Uh, so something maybe like, you know, I'm not born gifted in, in boldness. But in reality, they're just excuses. It's just conflict avoidance, lusting after the comfortable of the world and not really counting the cost for Jesus. It's the preservation of self over the proclamation of the gospel. True grace and love never overlooks sin, which so easily entangles and strangles us. There are eternal souls on the line. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Within every relationship and every encounter, the stakes are high. We must not be flippant or cower away, but realize the importance and value of the gospel of Jesus Christ in everybody's life. It is not loving if we allow people to continue on their way to destruction and eternal horrors. If we have the antidote for the disease, then we need to share it. And you can just think of an easy example of, you know, if someone had the, the cure for cancer or, or COVID right now, and they didn't want to share it because they were afraid of what other people would think, or that there'd be polarizing effect in social media and people might go crazy and say they're crazy and, and it would just make things hard and uncomfortable. So they just kept it to themselves. That would be ridiculous. And that would be very unloving. That's the same idea we're seeing here, that we have this sin problem, which is a cancer of the soul. And we have the antidote. We know how we can help point them to the, the healer, the doctor, our great physician. So through Jesus Christ, we know that there is healing. So we have got to be willing to share that and bring healing to people. God has called us to be lights in the darkness and to go out and make disciples and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those around us. He has also promised to provide us everything we need to do so, that he'll be with us, that he will take care of us, and that he is in control. Too often we live as if we don't believe that. Yes, we may know his promises and proclaim trusts in Jesus' work, but often it doesn't translate into our everyday lives as we paralyze ourselves with fears of what could go wrong for us. I think a great example of this is looking at Moses. I'm going to look at a few pieces, just I'm not going to read the whole verses from Exodus 3.10 to 12 and 4.10 to 13, but I'm just going to highlight the exchange between Moses uh, and, and God. And this was at the, the burning bush when God was telling Moses to, to go to Pharaoh to help free the, the Israelites from slavery. So it starts with, the Lord tells, tells Moses, come and I will send you. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go? But God said, but I will be with you. But Moses said to the Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But then he, Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Do you see what's happening here? God knows this is a difficult task for Moses. So he gives assurance that he will be with him. He gives Moses a promise that he has a plan and will see it through. The focus is on God and what God can do. But each time Moses shifts the focus to himself and why he can't do it. 
I love how patient God is through this. He doesn't just get angry. He doesn't just burn him up in the burning bush, but he patiently, lovingly reassures him over and over that he will be with him and supply him with his needs. And in the end, Moses trusts God and he goes as God told him to do. Moses shows faithfulness despite his fear. He shows trust despite his doubts. He put God's wisdom and desire ahead of his own, trusting that God could do what he himself could not. He is an example of godly courage, like we're seeing in John the Baptist in this story. So he knew he didn't have the ability himself and had a desire to stay in comfort, the easy road away from conflict. But he didn't ignore the call of God in his life, but rather put the value and worth of God ahead of his own life. As a result of his courage, God used him to lead and deliver the people of Israel out of slavery. And what a great example this is for us, because we are often plagued by the same paralyzing fear, so focused on ourselves that we miss opportunities to bring life to others. But, we, but what we see here and throughout the Bible is that God is faithful to lift our eyes back to him. He does so because he is our maker and he knows what we need and what we need is him. He is where our courage and he is where our boldness come from. It is not self-generated. It is not self-willed. It's not something we're just born with, but it is instilled in us by the power of God alone. True confidence only comes in Christ. That's why when God says, be strong and courageous versus like, like Joshua 1.9, he follows it up with, because I will be with you wherever you go. God knows we have fears, yet he calls us to be strong and courageous anyway, because he knows we can do it since he will be with us. He is our source of courage. He is the reason we can act courageously in the face of fear like Moses and John the Baptist did. His promises are a firm foundation, which we can lean on and are a source of unfailing hope. So we need to make sure that we have his promises ingrained in our heads. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of eternal salvation. We have a victory that has already been guaranteed to us with a promised reward, inheritance in God's kingdom at the end of the battle. We are promised that any pain and suffering in this life will be wiped away and eclipsed by the glory and joy of the Lord in heaven. The luxuries of this world don't even come close to comparing to the riches of heaven. And we are promised that God will be with us wherever we go. He will supply all of our needs that for those who love him, all things work together for good and for God's glory. Remember, all things are from him, through him and to him. These promises are ours through our adoption into God's family. We have a good and gracious father who is in perfect control. So let's ingrain these promises in our heads. And despite our fears, despite our weaknesses and doubts, let's follow God as he calls us. Be faithful to his commands and be used to lead people out of the slavery of sin and into the loving and gracious arms of our heavenly father. To do this, we have to be faithful to the holy commands of Jesus Christ, to speak the truth in love and to preach the good news of the gospel, no matter the cost. John the Baptist was willing to sacrifice his earthly freedom and life in order to stand up for the truth of God. Let's be willing to do just as much, to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, 
to lay our comforts, our fears, our, our pride at the foot of the cross and hold Jesus as more valuable than them all. Let's be bold and courageous together in sharing the truth of the gospel and participate in the saving of souls for everlasting splendor. There will be bruises and scars along the way, but we know victory is already ours through Jesus Christ. So let's join in, spread the good news of the gospel and enjoy the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are patient and loving. And we thank you that you are our redeemer and rescuer. That when we were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, that you stepped in and made a way for us to be adopted into your family according to your perfect purpose and will. We thank you for that. And I pray that that would fill us with love It would fill us with grace. It would fill us with the things that you have given us and allow us to pour that into others. And that in that, it would help us to be bold and courageous, just knowing the worth and the value and how wonderful you are. We thank you for that, Lord. And we we love you. uh, And we we lift up these prayers and and we lift up uh, our, our church, our community, and all these things to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.